0: 1 Corinthians 14, we'll be looking at the entire chapter today as we work our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm on a uh, mission to finish 1 Corinthians before I go on sabbatical, and so it was tempting this week to divide this chapter as it's going to be tempting next week to divide chapter 15. There's just so much there. as you turn there, just please uh, bow with me one last time as I pray. Lord God, I pray that you will help me not to just explain the text, but to also apply the text. Let this not just be an intellectual endeavor that is so tempting to engage in, but one in which your spirit will change our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie The Emperor's Club. That is a movie with Kevin Klein, and it portrays, he portrays a history of Western Civ, a history professor in Western Civ at a private school. And it's the first day of class, and about 30 students walk in and sit down to a classroom decorated with maps and busts of, you know, Caesar and Socrates and Plato. And the professor asks one student to stand up and go to the back of the room. If you've seen this movie, you know this. Go to the back of the room and read the plaque that's over the entryway. And the nervous student walks to the back and reads this. I am Shutruk Nahante, king of Hassan and Susa, sovereign of the land of Elam. By the command of Inshushanak, I destroyed Sipar. I took the steel of Nahasan and brought it back to Elam, where I erected it as an offering to my God in Shishanak. 1158, ShuTruk Nahante. The teacher then asked the class, is anyone familiar with ShuTruk Nahante? Class doesn't know. He says, open your history books and find him there and they all start rifling through their history books and he stops them and he says you won't find him in your history books in any history book he goes to a map and points to it and he says he was a king sovereign of Elam destroyer of Sipar, but his accomplishments cannot be found in any history book why He then says, because great ambition and conquest without contribution are of no significance. And then he challenges the class. What is your contribution going to be? That is a challenge that Paul would put to the Corinthian church here. Are you so concerned about how you look, about your position in the church, about what gifts you have and how you're using them to draw attention to yourself that you're not contributing to the body? Corinthians, gifting without contribution is of no significance. And so Paul says to them, starting in verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one, who, no one understands him. He utters mysteries within his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. But I would rather you have prophecy He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. Meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that would build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in tongues should pray that he may have an interpreter for what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray in my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct the others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written... Though man of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I'll speak to this people, but even they will not listen to me says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. I'm going to pause there. This is actually a pretty simple passage. We've made it very complicated. But this is actually a very simple passage. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, Christian worship is not self-serving, not about self, not about me. It's about others. It's about enriching others. It's about building others up. Now, just as an aside, we know that the purpose of worship is to glorify God. The reason we are here today is to glorify God. It is a, this vertical focus we have. Paul knows that, and in other places, he draws our attention to that, but here he is talking about the horizontal aspect of worship. And he says, it's not about you, Corinthians. It's it's about your brother and sister sitting next to you. Elevating, educating, edifying them. And this is a seismic shift from what the Corinthians were used to in their worship in the pagan temples there in Corinth, in the temples of Aphrodite, in the temples of Apollo and Dionysus there that they had grown up in. This is a totally different experience that Paul is explaining here. Because when you went to the worship at the Temple of Aphrodite, what you were there to do was impress. Show people what you got. The impressive was prioritized over the intelligible. So you had frenzied emotional worship going on there. The more frenzied, the more spiritual. Spontaneity was prized at the Temple of Apollo. People speaking all at once, speaking all over each other, was commonplace. The less structure, the more spiritual. When worshiping at the temple of Dionysus, the more mystical and cryptic you seemed, the more spiritual. Thus, when you went there and spoke in an unintelligible tongue, people would look at you and go, that person... Is really spiritual. By the way, there are unintelligible tongues spoken in other religions. This is not just for us. But Paul looked at their worship services and saw that it was unorganized, unintelligible, and self centered. Those three things unorganized, unintelligible, and self centered. In this chapter, he pens a corrective for those things. And the first corrective is Christian worship is not. To be centered on self, but others. In other words, edification of others matters. That's Paul's main point he wants to lay down here. Edification of others is what matters in worship. He says it over and over again. Look at verse five. He says it there. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you have the gift of prophecy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless it is interpreted so that the church may be edified. Look at verse 12. Try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. Look at verse 17 in the negative sense that you may give thanks well enough but the other man is not edified. He's saying your brother's not edified when you're speaking in an unintelligible tongue. And as we go on, we'll see that in verse 26 as well. He's dealing with the horizontal aspect of worship here. Whatever gifts that you are used in the context of worship should always be used to build up your brother and sister in Christ. Let me say that again. Whatever gifts that are used in the context of the gathering, the church should always be used to build up your brother and sister in Christ. That's why he prioritizes prophecy over tongues. He says that right from the very start. I wish that you have eagerly desire all the gifts, especially prophecy. Why especially prophecy? Because prophecy is, is what I'm doing right now is talking about God's word and it's intelligible prophecy just for clarity's sake prophecy is used in scripture three different ways one is revelatory prophecy and that is authoritative word of God given to a prophet or an apostle like we have here revelation That's not what Paul is dealing with here. Second type of prophecy is foretelling in the sense of future. That's usually how we think of prophecy, isn't it? Oh, he's a prophet. He's again, tell me the future. And we see that in scripture in Acts 21. We have Agabus prophesying about the future of Paul going to Jerusalem, tying his hands and feet up, saying that's how he will leave Rome. We see that in the prophets. Let me tell you, just so you know, when you read the prophets, only four to five percent of what you read is future telling. You know what the rest is? The third type of prophecy. That is fourth telling. Telling people about God, explaining God's word, reading God's uh, word to God's people. And that seems to be what Is in view here, speaking God's word, preaching, proclaiming God's word. And again, that's why Paul prioritizes the gift of prophecy over tongues. He says in verse 5 I would rather you prophesy, for prophecy is greater than he who speaks in a tongue. Explaining God's word clearly builds up your brothers and sisters. It edifies them. And that's what we're to be all about where our gifts are concerned, brothers and sisters. Worship or otherwise. Edification oriented. Other oriented. Building others up with your gifts. But there's the rub. Our flesh is always kicking against that. Our flesh always wants to turn everything into it's all about me, doesn't it? Our flesh is so self-focused. It distorts everything. Think about it. It distorts our view of authority. God gave us authority as something sweet and to be cherished and that we flourish under. We flourish under authority. But how do we think of authority? You're not going to tell me what to do, right? Or think about marriage, how our sin distorts marriage. We're always thinking about, well, hold it. He's not doing this for me. She's not giving me this. She's, it's all about me. When, and I, and I read Steve's, Steve Philbrooks' sermon. He sent it to me before he preached it yesterday. He got it right. It's all about the other. And it distorts our gifts, too. Our flesh distorts our gifts to serve us. Just think of some of the gifts. Hospitality. The gift of hospitality. How can our flesh distort the gift of hospitality? Well, instead of opening your home to all and making every single member feel welcome, loved, and cared for, well you're only hospitable to those people you feel comfortable around. Or only those who you want as friends. Or only those who feed your ego. I mean, invite those people over. Or what about the gift of service? Instead of serving indiscriminately, joyfully, under the radar, you limit your service to those who are easiest to serve those who really appreciate and tell me how much they really appreciate me or make sure that people see how hard you work by your dour expression or how about the gift of leadership instead of using your gift to selflessly help organize the body in a certain gen- in a certain direction you lead to advance your agenda your ideas you use it only if you can be in the spotlight. You never relinquish or delegate because it's all about you. You lead only when people are willing to follow and are happy to follow you. And you don't lead when it gets tough. You say, you know what those people say? I'm out of here. The gift of generosity, instead of being giving because of what you have been given in Christ, You always have the unless and if in mind. You always have the unlesses and ifs in mind. I'll give if. Unless they do this. We even selfishly distort the prophetic gifts of teaching and preaching. We teach in order to appear smart or gain a following or impress others. We use big words like... In for lapsarianism and penal substitutionary atonement to impress others? Or we preach with the wrong motives? I have a set of questions that I have right in front of my face every week as I prepare these messages, and a couple of these questions are these Am I worried about what people think of my message or what God thinks of my message? Am I depending on the Holy Spirit's power or my own cleverness? Will this message draw attention to me or to God? Brothers and sisters, I can preach with the wrong motives. And I have preached with the wrong motives. Selfish motives. Motives that build me up and not you. And that could certainly apply to the gift of tongues, the supernatural gift of speaking in another language, the supernatural gift of speaking in another language that you have not studied. The kind of Acts 2 type of tongues, where people spoke, you remember there in Acts 2, where Peter preached, and the, the Holy Spirit came down. And people start speaking in different tongues, different languages. And many of the nations that were there at Pentecost said, how can I hear them in my own language? They were speaking in another language. This gift is especially vulnerable to pride. Especially vulnerable to selfishness and building yourself up. Especially vulnerable to impressing others. Just imagine if this summer we had somebody come in here and visit, and during our congregational prayer time where we're all praying, this person started praying in the Kung language. Do you know the Kung language? That's that language in Africa that has the clicks, that kind of language. Imagine if they used to start praying in that language. Imagine the temptations, first of all, that person would have. Why am I doing this? I want to impress this group with my gift. Now I don't. Plan, I don't. I'm not clairvoyant. I can't look at people's hearts, but there would be a temptation there. Now imagine the questions running through our minds. Here you have this person praying in this kung language. What would you be thinking? Here's what I would be thinking. Maybe you think would be thinking these same things. These words must be directly from God. Oh, these words are so powerful. There has to be some power here. I Wonder what He's praying for. I wonder what he's saying? I wonder who He's praying for. I wish I knew what He was saying. That's the point we'd be left with more questions than answers. That's not edifying, and that is Paul's point, which leads to our second corrective. Worship should not be unintelligible. It should be understandable. You should understand what's going on in the worship service. Clarity matters. You see, the Corinthians were all speaking in tongues in different languages throughout the service, some over another, And nobody knew what was being said. Nobody knew what was going on. There was more confusion than clarity in that gathering. And Paul says clarity is critical to worship. Going on 20 years ago now, I can't believe I'm using those types of amounts of time. Uh, 20 years ago, Carrie and I, uh, we're just starting seminary, and uh, we wanted to worship in the town in which we lived, which was Salem, Massachusetts. So you can imagine the difficulty there, first of all. So we found this church, and we went, and we sat down. And it was a church about the, maybe a little bigger than this, but about probably half the size of this in people. And we sat down, and as the service got going... The, the the minister stood up and he said, let's make a joyful noise to the Lord. And Karen and I were like, oh, this is okay. And then the band, who was behind him, all started playing different notes. Hitting the band, hitting the drums, and, and none of them in sync. They were literally making a noise. Don't know how joyful noise in the worship service, and not only that, but then the kids got up and started going around like the the, the congregation, walking around, and I and I believe some some people with flags, if I remember correctly, started wa- waving the flags and walking around us while they're going all this noise going on, and Carrie and I are just sitting there. You know, I'm going into seminary thinking, Oh my goodness. And and then it stops. We're like, oh. we look at each other, we go, you know, thank you, Lord, that it's over. And the and the minister up there, he looks down, he leans over, he goes, Let's do that again. And he do it all over again. That's the problem that Paul's having with tongues. In the church, it's confusing and purposeless. Just like that worship service. That's what Paul is illustrating by the harp and the flute and the trumpet illustrations in verses 7, 8, and 9. The harp and flutes. They have delineated sounds so you can actually hear the music. It has purpose, it has a goal. The trumpet sound. In battle, has to be clear because that sound, calling people to battle, has a purpose. That's the, that's the point of the trumpet or bugle. And so too with you, Paul says. Your gift of tongues has to have a purpose for others. Your gift of tongues has to be clear. So Paul says in verse 13... Pray for an interpreter. Clarity is so important a little later on in the passage that we're going to read in a second in verses 27 and 28. He says, if there's no interpreter there, tongue speaker, don't speak. You're just causing confusion. People have no idea what you're saying. And that's pretty strong. And if that wasn't strong enough, he says in verses 18 and 19, I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue, in an unknown tongue. Why does Paul stress it like that? Why does Paul say it's 2,000 times more important that you speak clearly than in unclear, uninterpreted tongues? I can only think of one thing that Paul puts that much stress on. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he is so concerned here. That's why he stresses it here. He stresses it in verses 20 through 26. In verse 22, Paul says that tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. However, prophecy is for believers and not unbelievers. Tongues are a gift for unbelievers, and prophecy is a gift for believers. They both have the same purpose speaking the gospel, clarifying the gospel, explaining the gospel. They both have the same purpose, but to a different target audience. First, tongues are a gift whose target is unbelievers. Again, that's what we see in Acts 2. That's what we see, and it's consistent through Scripture. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends, people start speaking in strange tongues they previously did not speak in, and people from other countries went, ah, I'm hearing the gospel. How do we know they're hearing the gospel? Because at the end of it, they go, what must we do to be saved And 3,000 repent and trust in Christ. The focus of tongues is unbeliever. The purpose of tongues is to bridge the language barrier for the gospel. The purpose of tongues is to bridge supernaturally the language barrier for the purpose of sharing the hope, love, and peace of Jesus Christ. Yet the Corinthians were using it for the in the wrong context, church, for the wrong purpose, self. So inquirers and unbelievers were, he said, would come into a church, their church service, where tongues are being spoken in a frenzied manner, and they'd look around, no interpretation, and they'd go, "We're out of here. This is crazy." Very similar to the reaction the Carina had. And Paul says the purpose of tongues is actually the same as prophecy, to express clearly the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verses 24 and 25 to explain the gospel. He says, if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, so they're just speaking in the known language, but if there's a person speaking in a tongue, there'll be an interpreter there who will be explaining the gospel. Everyone is prophesying he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. The gospel convicts a person of their sin. That's what's going on here. The gospel convinces them that there's actually a judgment out there. I mean, beforehand, before you're a Christian, you, you live your life as if there's no judgment, right? I can do anything I want because there's no, there's no consequences to this. When you understand the gospel, you go, hold it. There's going to be a time when I have to give an account of my life. There's a change there. And it convicts people that a savior is needed outside of themselves, God is really here. That's the purpose of the gospel, not how to live a good moral life. Let me say that again. The reason, if you're here at church today, and you think, you know, I just need to brush up my my exterior, I just need to learn how to live right, you're not here for the right reason. And you won't hear that here. The gospel is not even how to become a better person. I just want to be a better dad or a mom. I just want to I just want to be a better community member. There might be some effects of that and there should be to your change of heart, but really it's about your change of heart. Now Jesus lived and died to deal with your and my core problem. And that core problem is sin judgment and salvation. So Jesus came and lived a sinless life. He lived the life that you and I can't live. Sinless, righteous, perfect to deal with our sin issue because we can't live a sinless life. And he went to the cross and Jesus cried out, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He was at that moment on the cross saying, God, their punishment on me. And God did just that. God's judgment for your sins and mine were punished in Jesus' death. And that's the judgment. And because he rose from the dead and lives on today, if you believe and trust in what Jesus did and not what you can do, not by your own good works, we believe that we need a Savior, and the Savior isn't us. The Bible says, anyone who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame, Romans ten eleven. That's the message that Paul needs to be crystal clear. That's the clear and edifying gospel that matters, not some supernatural experience, not some impressive gift. David Jackman says in his commentary, congregational meetings are to be judged not by their excitement levels, but by the content of the message proclaimed. And that's the message that Paul wants proclaimed at Corinth, and that's the message that we want proclaimed here at SWHCC. The last corrective Paul writes is that worship is not to be totally unstructured and unplanned and spontaneous but it is to be thought through, intentional, and purposeful. In other words, order matters in worship. Look with me at verse 26. What shall I say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue... Two or at most three should speak at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker must keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in church. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people who it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself is to be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not, be for, not forbid speaking in tongues, for everything should be done in a fitting and orderly manner. Those words should have been heeded, by that pastor and those elders if they had them in that church that we visited almost 20 years ago. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly manner. Now, I I agree with uh, one of the commentators here, Stephen Um, in his commentary on this section that Paul is walking a, a thin line here, a thin line between order and freedom. He writes, freedom for the sake of freedom is chaotic. We all know what that looks like. Or order simply for sake of order is despotic. And possibly some of you have experienced this type of church as well, where you're scared to do something wrong. Okay, do I do that or not? I don't know. I'm just petrified that I'm going to do something wrong in this service. What Paul's advocating here is order For the sake of freedom, which is liberating. Balanced, gracious, liberating order. And he applies it to three areas in the Corinthian church. Tongues, prophecy, and women speaking in church. Let's take their hot button issue first. Their hot button issue is tongues. So, Paul says, okay, let's have some order around tongues. Let's speak one at a time, not frenzied over each other like you are used to. And two or three tongues is enough. Let's not let it dominate the worship service. And they have to be interpreted. No interpretation, no clarity. No interpretation, keep it to yourself. Paul also wants there to be freedom too. And that's what verse 39 gives them. He says after he says all this, I do not forbid anyone from prophesying or speaking in tongues. There's freedom there. People have asked me over the last 14 years, do we allow tongues in our worship service? And I say, yep, absolutely. If there's an interpreter, absolutely. If not, just keep it to yourself. Next, Paul deals with prophecy in the Corinthian service. There should be order, he says, Same thing, prophesy one at a time. Don't speak over each other. Perhaps two or three in the service. Let's make room for other things in the service like singing and prayer. Let's not let that dominate as well. Then take time to weigh the prophecy. What does he mean by this? He's probably meaning a prophecy was, was spoken. In other words, somebody quoted from the Bible and then there was time to, to try and talk about that, the interpretation of that and how it applies to the body. Probably very similar to what we do back in adult Sunday school, if you've ever gone there. Take time so that the edifying work can be done. And that also reveals how different their worship services looked than ours. There were probably two or three or maybe even more people that would stand up. If you've ever been to a brethren service, Or a uh, Quaker service, probably more similar to that. But, he says, there should be order, but also freedom. Be eager to prophesy, he says in verse 39. And if you want to look at verse 31, it says, for you can all prophesy in turn. Women, men, yep, Yeah." Back in chapter 11, we're told that women were prophesying. Sure. And that brings us to our hot-button issue. Silence of women in worship. just want to tell you to the hearers of this letter 2,000 years ago, this was not a hot-button issue. It just wasn't. They would have all been shaking their heads. In that culture, women did not talk in public except to their husbands. To do so would have brought great disrespect to their husband. Think about it like this. Try and bring it into the 20th century. You're in a small group of people talking, married people talking, and one of the married women is pretty openly flirting with another one of the men. I don't know if you've ever been in a group like that. I've been in these groups, and you go, I'm just really uncomfortable. I can't believe this is going on. This is very uncomfortable. And it's very disrespectful for the husband that's sitting there. That's kind of, I'm trying to give us a feeling, kind of what it would be like back then if a woman were to speak in public. So that's the culture that Paul is speaking into. So here, Paul is most likely talking about how women learn. How women learn. Not predominantly what they're saying or speaking out, but how women are to learn. And as the prophecies are spoken and then weighed in the worship service, we're not sure what's going on here, but there's discussion going on and he says women are to keep silent in that discussion about what was just said from scripture. Again, we don't have a whole lot of information, but a situation could be that in Corinth, as the prophecy was being considered in the church by the male leadership, women were interjecting and asking questions and perhaps even challenging the rulings that are being made in the Corinthian church. And in that culture, this would have been highly inappropriate. Brought shame and dishonor to the, to the husband. Again, imagine right now if someone stood up and said, Blake, I don't agree with your interpretation of this text. Okay. You're free to say that and free to believe that, but I think we'd all agree that it's probably the wrong time for that. And that's what's going on here. He's saying, just be quiet in church. If you disagree or you have another, another slant on this text, go home and talk about it with your husband. Learn in that context. Seems to be what Paul is saying here. According to verse 37, order, the Lord commands, the order is what the Lord commands in the worship service. He needs it orderly. And the Corinthian church was out of order. So, incredibly briefly in conclusion, worship matters to the Lord. He wants his worship to be edifying, clear, and liberatingly ordered. As I've said from the moment I got here 14 years ago, everything else we do can go away, guys. Everything else we do can go away, but not this. This matters. This, what we're doing right now, is foundational. Everything else can go away. This is what we're saved into right here because that's our highest and greatest purpose. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Spirit, depend on you to apply this well and to cover my tracks if I have not explained it as you intended it. In Jesus' name, amen.